All right. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, please. Habakkuk chapter 3. We come to the last chapter of Habakkuk here, which uh, contains the prayer song of the prophet. This morning we looked at the in-depth study of the first two verses and verse 16 on down, so we won't spend much time on those verses, but just to general commentary to see the overview of the entire chapter. Again, the entire book of Habakkuk unfolds through prayer. The confusion of the prophet is expressed in prayer in chapter 1. can't understand how God could use Babylon and why he's not answering him. That was the first one that he moved on to, um, that God was going to use Babylon. He didn't like that. He couldn't understand that. The perception of the prophet was cleared up by prayer in chapter 2 as he waited upon God. God will judge the wicked. He's on the throne. No one gets away with anything. And the revelation to the prophet is revealed through prayer here in chapter 3, which gives them great faith and hope in God, not in the circumstance or the difficulties of the day. And so in chapter 3 here, verse 1 and 2, you have the introduction to the prayer. He says, The prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigonoth, O Lord, I have heard your speech, and I was afraid, O Lord. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The intent of the instructions here for prayer, or the introduction for prayer here, is um, his crying out to God as an intercessor for divine help. Remember Habakkuk, his name means embrace. He um, really began not so much for the people, but now he has compassion for the people. As God has revealed him to him his justice and his holiness and the promise of, of the remnant. And we have this throughout the, all the minor prophets as well as the major prophets. The directive for prayer is that it is to be a song of musical accompaniment, as we said this morning. Shigonoth means, um, some commentators say it's uncertain, but once again it's related to the musical accompaniment, and perhaps it relates to the, to the mode or the upbeat of it, which we stated that it's interesting if it is, then it, it makes it very illuminating because as you look at the three chapters, it would be a very down message of judgment and gloom and all that. And yet, this is a, a, a warning from God to all those who would uh, rebel against him and his justice to judge those who do, but also his faithfulness to those who are righteous, who trust in him, who look to him like Habakkuk. So it's really a message of hope, a hope in God, not in the circumstance. And so that God is the one who gets the glory at all times. It's described as the chief musician with string instrument. Perhaps, uh, again, Habakkuk was related to the Levitical uh, tribe because of the temple here. And again, David set up all the different courses for the priests and 
and the choirs and all that. First Chronicles 25 and others record that for us. And um, um, the particulars of the prayer is um, he acknowledged hearing God's voice resulting in fear, a godly fear, uh, certainly, but also a fear of the judgment, of the awesomeness of God's judgment. Certainly, as we read um, the book of Jeremiah and the uh, destruction and how it came and the atrocities and, and the suffering and the lamentations and, and just horrific things. And you know, we live in a world that um, war is, um, is nothing new. We have seen um, more atrocities now than ever before. The Vietnam age changed everything. It was the first time the newscasters went into the field to to shoot live film in the battlefield, and it's never been the same. And so we get horrific imageries of, of those uh, war-torn countries today immediately, especially now with iPhones and everything else. So we kind of become immune to all this to an extent. Um, here he's overwhelmed um, with fear for that judgment. His petition is twofold to keep alive the nation, revive your work in the midst of the years, so in other words, it has to do with, with God um, being there in his redemptive power for those who do call upon him. Certainly God does not force anybody to go to heaven or to walk with him. Uh, it's always our submission to him and our obedience to him. And we know that if there's a failure in the relationship. It certainly isn't God. It's always on our part. Um, you know, when I used to go out when I was single in the 60s and um, if a girl went out with somebody else when you were going steady with her you would say she's two-timing me well God doesn't two-time anybody but he warns us about two-timing him um, having other idols turning our back upon him it's always on our part but also to execute his plan as revealed in the midst of the years, make it known. Make it known. And he's not telling them like God for God, but it's an affirmation that God will and for the purpose that God gets the glory. God gets glorified. When God brings judgment, he gets glorified. When God redeems and saves through repentance, he gets glorified because it doesn't violate his holiness on both ends. On the one of sin, he justifies his holiness by judging sin. And when he forgives sins, he's justified in his holiness because he has made the way by which to be redeemed. And so it's always God who sets the standard in the way that we do this. And also to give them less than they deserve. In wrath, remember mercy, the turbulent times, and the turmoil, distress. God would be merciful. And James tells us that if um, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that if we uh, want mercy, we need to be merciful. Jesus said in the Beatitudes in chapter 5 of Matthew. And so uh, here the, the prayer, the introduction here in verse 1 and 2. From verse 3 down to 6, we have the return of Jesus to judge the world. Now, as you've been with us with the minor prophets, you know that prophecy always has a short term and a long term. Sometimes it hits both of them. Okay, But all of the minor prophets have many verses, if not sections, of the return of Christ, if not the millennial kingdom, okay? The return of Christ comes first to set up the millennial kingdom. So there's the tribulation of seven years, tribulation, great tribulation, 
the judgment of the nations, the setting up of the kingdom, thousand-year reign, and then the eternity that God has after the white throne judgment. So that's always the order. Not everything is included every time, but there's always the aspect of his coming to judge the nations. There's the aspect of the millennial kingdom at times very clearly. And here again, the theophonic description of God's second coming is very, very evident. He is a warrior, a victorious warrior. All you have to do is look to Revelation chapter 19. He comes, we come back with him. He comes on a white horse with a sword out of his mouth, two-edged sword. To destroy the nations of the world. Literally, the second coming of Jesus Christ is to stop the nations from destroying themselves. If Jesus would not return, this earth would destroy itself. It is Jesus who will destroy the earth after the thousand year reign. Second Peter 3 tells us all things will melt with fervent heat. When he returns after the seven year tribulation, before the millennial, he'll redo the whole earth. But at the end of the thousand years, after Satan is loose and the last rebellion, the white throne judgment, then everything melts and there's the new heaven, the new earth, and the eternity. Okay? And that's very clear as we studied the millennium. So here in, in um, chapter 3, verse 3 through 6, he said, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covers the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, and had rays flashing from his hands. And there his power was, was hidden before him when pestilence and uh, fever followed at his feet. He stood and he measured the earth. He looked at the, uh, and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. And so here in verse 3, the prophet praises God for his power, his involvement in world affairs and man's history. God sits at the right hand of the Father. He's not detached. And um, um, the prophet here again reveals his coming to set up the kingdom, yet associates God with past events dealing with Israel. So as he moves through this, um, J, the late J. Vernon McGee sees Abraham um, from verse 3 to 6, the events during this time, verse 7 through 10, Joshua, and 11 through 15, um, or I'm sorry, Abraham 3 to 6, Moses 7 to 10, and Joshua 10, 11 through 15. But again, I don't think it's that clear but it, he does mention past events that fit into those sections, okay? For sure, Moses and Joshua, uh, uh, Joshua is seen there. So God is using past event descriptions, but yet he's looking towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what's being um, directed here in this context. The announcement of his coming there in verse 3. God comes from Tim Timon, the area of Edom or Seir, south and east of the Dead Sea. Some of you have been over to Israel with us. You can see yourself there on, um, on uh, the, Go uh, not the Gohan, but on Masada. And we're looking across to the Dead Sea. And to the right, you have Edom. In fact, uh, on the Red Sea, you will, uh, on the Dead Sea, you will see the Red Sea, sometimes called the Red Sea because of the red mountains and the sun hits it, it reflects it. And as you go down to the Gulf of Aqaba. And so these areas, 
we know that um, Abraham uh, was there also down towards uh, Edom and, and that. But here he's talking about the return of Christ as he comes from that direction and makes his way in. The Holy One from Mount Paran. This is the wilderness area bounded by the north to the land of Israel, on the west by the wilderness of Edom, in the south by the desert of Sinai, and on the east by the valley of Arba. And the Exodus came through this area coming to Kadesh Barnea. And so Jesus will return over and over again. We read in the scriptures that he would come the first time, and he did. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Over and over again, we read he's going to come back a second time, first for his church, and then with his church to set up the kingdom. It's not three comings. When he comes for his church, he doesn't come to the earth. He comes into the clouds, and we are raptured to the clouds. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says... And we are with him through the beam of seed of Christ. And we are rewarded and we come back with him to set up the kingdom. While the seven year tribulation is going on. So there's not three comings. There's only two comings. The first coming to redeem us and die for our sins. And the second coming to set up the kingdom. Okay. Um, the third coming is a mute argument. It's fictitious. Now. Notice this is the return of Jesus. His return is with incredible glory, covering the heavens and the earth full of his praise at his return. Um, the remnant of Israel has called upon his name. He has hidden them in the city of Petra. Uh, and you guys see Transformers. You saw a good view of Petra <laughs> as the two robots got in a fight there inside the chamber, the treasure chamber, and they were thrown out by the other one. Um, the word Sila again, means pause, kind of a reflection, meditate on what you're reading here. The second coming. John tells us that his glory will be seen by all. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, the Jews. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. Revelation 1-7. So the second coming of Jesus Christ is not going to be a secret coming. Every eye is going to see him. It's, nobody's going to have to be called or, or given a text. And the temple of Solomon was filled with all the priests and they ran out in 1 Kings 8.11 because the glory of God filled the temple. Here, um, the glory of God fills the earth. Remember Moses' face shine as he was uh, on the mountain. There in Exodus 34, Jesus went on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, and the disciples saw him. Peter, James, and John, the same thing. He was glorified in his glorified form. That was a pre preview of the second coming. The praise will be by the remnant of Israel and those waiting for his return um, that have not taken the mark of the beast, who have accepted Christ during those seven years. Now many will die. The book of Revelation is very, very clear. Because when people accept the mark of the beast. On the right hand of their forehead. Then they are damned. Without that mark you cannot buy. You cannot sell. And we are seeing a constant progressive move towards that. In fact, we are going to a cashless society pretty soon. If you have any amount of money in the bank and you go remove tomorrow a big chunk and if it's over a certain amount, they will flag you 
and call you or ask you, why did you move that big chunk? Or they will limit you on the amount of the size of check, certain banks. Okay? And so it's going to continue to go. We have credit cards. We even have chips now. And it'll finally end up in the Great Tribulation with the mark of the beast. When the Antichrist comes on the scene, ladies and gentlemen, everything will be set up for him. Henry Spack, the president of Common Market, way back in the 70s, says, you know, we need one man with sufficient stature to get us out of this economic morass, whether it be from God or Satan, we will receive him. End of quote. That's 40 years ago. <laughs> We're moving towards that. Obama keeps pushing for world courts to make us uh, uh, be ruled and dominated by the world courts. Uh, many of our soldiers um, came back and they had to fly under the NATO flag, not the American flag. And so we're moving towards that. It's amazing to me. Now, Jesus will return with his brightness like light, it says there in verse 4, lightning and thunder in Mount Sinai. We remember that in Exodus. The people were so afraid they didn't want to hear God's voice. No, no, Moses, you talk to him, then you talk to us. Jesus said he was the light of the world in John eight twelve. The holiness of God, the heavens are not pure in his sight. I can imagine the glory of the angels there at the tomb. Mount of Transfiguration and all the different things that we have recorded in Scripture. Hebrews 1.3 says, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The, being the brightness of God, of His glory. Jesus will have rays flashing from his hand, it says. Look at verse 4. And the rays there has the idea of streams of glory projecting from his hands, radiance and splendor of his presence. Remember when Paul was arrested by Jesus and saved on the road to Damascus, they saw a bright light and a voice. Only Paul could discern what the voice was saying. The others didn't. Jesus has the same glorified body when he ascended up to heaven from Mount of Olives. The angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Acts 1.11 he bears the marks on his body. He is the God-man. He will return in that same body. Very possibly, as Isaiah says, there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. And in the hands of Jesus, his power was hidden, it says. Jesus is omnipotent, all-powerful, no longer as a suffering servant, but rather the conquering Christ who will destroy the armies of the world that are gathered in the valley of Megiddo, some of you have been there in the Carmelite Monastery as we look out over the Sharon Valley, the valley of Megiddo. And they're gathered to stop him establishing his kingdom. You have the preview in Psalm 2. You have the very description in Revelation 19. 
Verse 5 and 6, the devastation, judgment by Jesus is given. The coming of Jesus is uh, preceded by judgment and pestilence in the great tribulation. Jesus will uh, wage war, famine, pestilence through the seven seals, bowls, and the trumpet judgment from Revelation 6 to 18. A horrible time. Jesus says such a time as never has been or ever will be. It would be better for you to die than to live in those days. People kind of mock at it or they say, well, you know, I'll do this. I'll just go to the night. It's not going to be like people think it's going to be. Even social unrest, it's ugly. When we are packed in like sardines in cities and if anarchy ever broke out, you have no, no idea of the vicious wickedness of man. When it comes to push and shove, he will push and shove. He will kill. He will rape. He will maim. He will do anything to survive. And yet that doesn't even lend itself to what will happen through the Great Tribulation. Pestilence, famine, earthquakes. One earthquake so large that not a mountain was found. An island. Whoa. Now that's bigger than what they're telling us here for the San Andreas Fault. Um, fever means fireballs and flames. Now we see some of that in the book of Revelation. Uh, we see in the Old Testament where God used nature to destroy the enemy. Revelation 1.15 says his feet were like fine, flour, fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, as an army. Verse 6, the coming will bring about the judgment of the world. Jesus will judge the nations for their treatment of the Jew in the tribulation and great tribulation. He stood and he measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. This is stated clearly in the Gospels. Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 25 particularly. He will judge the sheep from the goat. And he says, you visited me when I was in prison. You gave me a cold glass of water. When did we do that, Lord? When you did it to the least of my brethren. Context. Matthew writes to the Jew. Matthew 24, 25 is great tribulation and the second coming and that's Jewish ground. There's no church there at all. The way you treated the Jew during the Great Tribulation, Jesus will judge the nations of the world. The first thing he will do. Now, as Mr. Obama has taken such a contrary stand against Israel, it's not good for us. So, let's just keep praying. There's only about three and a half months that he'll be in. And hopefully we get a change of guard that will give us some breathing room. We don't know. So we do what we have to responsibly and then we trust in God and we'll see what God will do. And so the Mount of Olives, when Jesus returns, will split in two. He will touch. Some of you were standing in the Mount of Olives. It will split in two. Mount Scopus, Mount of Olives right there by that region. 
Creation groans for the coming of Christ, Romans 8.22 tells us. It's looking for the return of Christ. When you get to verse 7, down to 15, you have the past acts of God's, uh, and they parallel the coming judgment of the second coming. Again, here's where some see, continue to see Moses, the first one was um, Abraham, but I think, that, again, they're just the past events in that region, and of course we can identify individuals with it. But here in verse um, 7, he says, I saw the tents of Cush, um, Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian tremble. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? That you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? And so the return of Jesus to judge the guilty world, not an innocent world, a hostile world against him. Jesus sees the result of the evil of the wickedness. The tense of, of cushion here in affliction. This is Ethiopia. Now in the scriptures, we in the book of Judges, chapter 3, 8 through 11, um, the Ethiopians suppressed the Israelites. We have some of uh, the Ethiopians in the Old Testament also that came against um, Israel. Jesus sees the fear of their judgment, having to give an account. The curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Now, Midian is the area where Moses fled, if you remember, in Exodus chapter 3, when he fled from Egypt and he went towards Mount Sinai. He, of course, didn't know about Mount Sinai and God there that came afterwards, but he went and he met Jethro, his future father-in-law. Now, it's interesting that they put Mount Sinai, if you look at your Bible maps in the back, they put Mount Sinai there in the Sinai Peninsula, which gives you, the, from your perspective, the right arm of the Red Sea, which is Aqaba, and the other one on the other side. Well, Mount Sinai is not there. Mount Sinai is over in Midia, the Arabian Desert. And Paul gives you that very, very clearly in the book of Galatians 4.25. So the maths in your Bible and mine are absolutely wrong. Put a circle around it and slash it. It's in Midia, in Arabia. Okay? So the people who made the maps where Mount Sinai is um, get an F in the subject of map making of the Bible. Um, verse 8, the holy God must judge sin consistently. The rhetorical question has the obvious answer, no. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? No. The displeasure of God was not with the creation, but sinful man, and he used creation in his judgment. God used the waters and the flood. God used the Red Sea to destroy the Egyptian army. God used creation in many different aspects. He will use much of creation during the Great Tribulation as you read the book of Revelation. This could be referring to 
to the judgment of the flood. Again, the events of the past paralleling with those that are coming in the future, the short term, the long term. Um, the wrath of God against the sea probably refers to the Red Sea, Exodus 14 and 15. And there was also the parting of the Jordan that you remember in Joshua chapter 3 and 4 um, during flood season. And he brought the children of Israel through it. And they took the first city, Jericho, as they again marched around the city after the plan of God and the walls came tumbling down. It was all God's divine intervention. It was God who used them to judge those of the land that God had warned for 400 years. Read the text where God tells Abraham, I cannot give you the land until the abomination of the Amorites is fully come. I believe Genesis 15, okay? And God gave 400 years. That means that they were warned by God. God never brings judgment. We're not told how, when, but the fact that God was waiting patiently for 400 years means that they had that opportunity to repent. And when they didn't, God used Israel to bring judgment upon them. And God gave them the land and he warned the children of Israel. Now, the land vomited these people out because of their lifestyle, their debauchery and sexuality and their worship and everything else. And you be careful as you go the same route because the land will spit you out. It will not tolerate you. It will not support you. Interesting. Notice that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation. The beautiful, picturesque, poetical description of the captain of the armies of the heaven. A mighty warrior, victorious in judgment. Psalm 104.3 and many others that paint this. Uh, the title, the Lord of hosts is the captain of the armies of heaven. The focus and outcome being salvation. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. We used to sing that song way back in the 70s. In Psalm 20, verse 7. Um, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Psalm 68, 17 says, God defeated the chariots of Egypt, celebrating the victory song led by Miriam in the timbrel and dance in Exodus 14 and 15. God is a mighty warrior, and he doesn't have to worry about how many chariots somebody has or how powerful they are. It doesn't matter. God is all-powerful, and no one can stand against him. Verse 9, he says, Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrow, Selah. You divided earth with rivers. The earth with rivers. The mountains uh, saw you and trembled. An overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. So here nature praising, worshiping God. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went. At the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trample the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For salvation 
with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from uh, foundation to neck, Selah. You thrust through with this, his own arrows, the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. The rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. Wow. What an incredible, incredible description of the theophany of God here. Um, notice verse 9 there. The judgment came directly from God. God is never too quick to judge. When he does, it's because he has given sufficient time for that. Your bow was made quite ready. Now, we can accuse people of being impatient with us and jumping the gun and, 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 and taking actions that shouldn't have been and whatever, but not with God. And God cannot lie and promises to judge sin. Um, oaths were sworn over your arrows. So in other words, his judgment, as he shoots an arrow and he would destroy someone, it would be just, it wouldn't be an accident, it wouldn't be out of order, and he is the one who judges all mankind. So it's a very figurative, picturesque language that's here. God, sword lifting his hand to the heavens about judgment, about judgment, those departing from him and his enemies is spoken about in Deuteronomy 32, 40 through 42. And God can swear by no one greater than himself, Hebrews 6, 13. So he swears by himself. And he cannot lie, as Numbers says. And God uses nature to judge again, often in the scriptures. So here again, Selah contemplating, um, you know, he divides the earth through the rivers. Um, this could refer to the flood again of Noah. And again, Selah considering, contemplating upon that. In verse 10, the creation of God is subject to him. Again, and um, it, this seems to flow with the parting of the Red Sea. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the waters passed. Um, it could also maybe refer to the flood. So in this section here from 6 to 15, it's very figurative, but again, the, the second coming is the aspect and is the judgment that's coming. And we certainly have seen God act in the past in many different aspects of the exodus, of the conquering of the land, Mount Sinai, and many things. And so, the agreement and oneness of creation with the will of God is indicated the deep uttered its voice in verse 10 and lifted its hands on high. In verse 11, the, the disrupting of the natural in judgment, God stopped their normal activities. The sun, the moon stood still in their habitation. God used them for his glory and the light of your arrows they went and the shining of your glittering spear. So God intervened in the days, this reminds us of the days of Joshua, in like manner at Gibeon to destroy the enemy. He needed more light in Joshua 10, 12 through 14. Again, God intervenes and he disrupts the laws of nature. 
You know, there's certain laws in nature that God has uh, provided, and they are as consistent as He is. In other words, the law of gravity is always the same. It's consistent. Never will you be able to throw something out or let something drop, and it's going to go up. Not while you're on earth. The law of gravity is going to thrust it to the ground. So there are certain principles and laws. The law of entropy. It's consistent. The speed of light. Though they are thinking that maybe it's not as consistent. 186,000 miles per second. They think it might not be consistent. Which is throwing the scientific community into a tissue. And so, but the laws of science, that's true science, goes along with the principles and laws of nature that God has placed. But God many times intervenes and disrupts those. Now, the, the theories of man are not science in itself. But they're theories, they're hypotheses. The hypothesis of evolution, the laws of science refuted, rejected. But they have put the theories of man on equal par with the laws of science, which is absolutely wrong. And so, in verse 12 through 15, the warrior God defeating the nations, some see this as a reference to Egypt, but most likely it's the twofold judgment of Babylon as well as the second coming, short and long. It's hard to distinguish the way he goes in and out. God marches through the land in indignation, verse 12. The term indignation is a term for the great tribulation prior to the second coming. Indignation, gloom, distress. We've read it through the minor prophets over and over again. God trampled the nations, plural, in verse 12 there. The nations, plural. The nations in Canaan, in the past, we understand that. But now the nations in the future. The salvation of the remnant of Israel is in line. Look at verse 13. The salvation of your people, the Jew. The second coming. Salvation is stated twice for the remnant in the last days. With your anointed, referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The victory would be sure. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. In other words, his judgment was complete. God doesn't have to walk through a second time. One swipe, like cleaning a dish. And in fact, that imagery is used in the Old Testament about his judgment. Sila again, pause or reflection. The victory is all of God, notice verse 14, not man. This could refer to God using Babylon to punish his people and then judge them. You thrust through with his own arrows, the head of his villages. Babylon delighted in their victory over Judah. He says, they came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. Perhaps referring to the past victories of God over the Egyptians to assure the victory of God over Babylon and the second coming. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heap of great waters. So in other words, 
God's reputation precedes him. Remember the common twofold fulfillment of Scripture, short term and long term. When you come to verse 16, down to 19, you have the proclamation of Habakkuk through a prayer of faith to trust God in spite of the coming judgment. The prophet has had a turnabout. He has now aligned himself with God. He no longer is confused. He no longer is agitated at God, but he is one with God, and he's trusting God. Verse 16, we did a message this morning. If you didn't, weren't here, I would encourage you to pick it up. We did it more in depth. When I heard my body tremble, now verse 16 is looking back to everything that he heard from verse 6 down to 15. The awesome judgment. When I heard my body tremble, my lips quivered at the voice of rottenness entered my bones. And I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with the troops. And so here, the response of Habakkuk to this revelation, fear gripped the prophet again, hearing the voice of God affecting him emotionally and physically, as we said. This is the return of Christ. Habakkuk's looking at chapter 3. 3 down to 15. The visceral area where fear and anxiety strikes us. The fear cringing how awful the, what's happening. And you, you, you almost can't believe it as if you're driving down the street and you see some horrific accident and you just... Now everybody responds differently. But here the prophet is overwhelmed by the judgment. Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. In Isaiah 6, 5. And God sent a cherub from the altar with a coal and he touched his lips. And he says, Who shall I send? Said I. And God sends Isaiah to proclaim the word to his people to warn them. Faintness overcame the prophet. Not only his visceral area, but he became faint. He became unsteady. The word rottenness means to decay. Almost like if his legs couldn't hold him up. Sometimes I've done weddings and um, I've had grooms and best men get so nervous they lock their legs. And all of a sudden, boom, timber. And they just go down to the ground. Uh, the prophet's overwhelmed that he, um, he almost uh, went down. Um, quaking in himself in shock. Daniel also was sick for many days after the vision that he received in Daniel 8.27. And so these visions and these um, um, instructions that God allowed them to receive the revelation to communicate and record were incredible things. Notice faith triumphs over the prophet's fear. His fear of all this, he yields to faith for the clear revelation of God's faithfulness. His justice, as horrible as it would be, 
Judah would deserve that judgment. If you could stand in the judgment day of the white throne judgment and you stood next to God, and we will, when he proclaimed judgment, even if it was your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, and your daughter who had perished, and he judged them in the white throne judgment, you would not say, Lord, you would say, you are righteous, Lord. All the glory belongs to you. That's what you would say. Because God can make no mistake when it comes to judgment. He will not be unfair at all. The prophet Habakkuk has accepted and trusted the ways and the will of God now. The word rest means to settle down, to be reposed and quiet here. The time is in the day of trouble, distress. And certainly in this day it was distress as Babylon was going to be used by God. And Yahweh was going to be the one bringing judgment, but through the hand of the Babylonians. Verse 17, he says, now he, he's a realist. He knows what's going to happen. He's been around long enough. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the field yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now the prophet is aligned with God. He's committed. Knowing that God is holy. And that he does not let anybody escape their accountability to him. And he knows that the devastation that's going to come is going to be so horrific. That the fruit trees will be devastated. The olive orchards will be neglected. The fields uncultivated for food, the flocks will disappear. And yet in spite of all that, he makes the conscious declaration, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. So now he is going to be responding to the word of God, the promises of God, not upon the circumstance, not upon his emotions, not leaning to his own understanding. But what is it that the word of God says? Because faith comes from the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. I share with you that this morning, Romans ten seventeen. So if you are going to be a man and a woman of faith, you must be in the word of God. Studying, reading, meditating, mulling over, it's you know, like when you eat a steak. You don't just cut a piece of steak, you swallow it. No, you chew it, you savor it, and you keep chewing it, and you're getting the most out of it. That's what you need to do with the Word of God. Not just read it real fast. Okay, that's it. My two verses for day. No. You've got to take it in, you've got to chew it, and you've got to maul it, and you've got to meditate upon it, you got to, you know, tear it apart. So here the prophet again. In spite of all this horrific um, suffering to come. Interesting that both the fig tree and the olive tree are symbolic of the nation of Israel. Hosea 9.10, 14.6, Joel 1.7, 1 
Matthew 24, 32 and Romans 10, 24 to mention a few. Jesus said, learn a parable from the fig tree. Know when summer is nigh. And he goes and gives the aspect of his coming. All of this is in accord with the promises of God that he's brought upon them. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, the cursings. God says, if you do this, I will bless you. If you don't obey me, if you rebel against me, I will get you. Somehow we, we just think that, well, you know, why, why, why does God do that? Well, what do you mean, why does God do that? People think that God's a Santa Claus. And that he should just let them slide. Really? Listen. He kicked Satan out of heaven. After his rebellion. Now he still have access, but during the great tribulation, he's going to be cast down to the earth. He's the accuser of the brethren right now. But God cannot tolerate sin. He has to deal with it. He has to judge it. Because sin destroys. Sin kills. And so the faith of the prophet Habakkuk was to believe and rejoice in the promises of God. Not to be distracted by the present difficulty or the future suffering. Faith is the substance of things hopeful. The evidence thing not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. Those that come to God must believe that he is and that he is a reward. Those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 Faith is the product of the word of God. Not the reverse. And so many people do not study the word of God. They don't go to church and, and sit under teaching. They're not involved. They don't allow the word to transform them. They don't yield to the word. They run their life by feelings, by emotions, and by the pop Christianity of the day of, of the emergent church and, and this whole social justice of the Obama administration has crept into the church like Reverend Wrong, his pastor. It's ridiculous. Liberating theology. It colors the theology of God with culture and race. It distorts it. Social justice, you want social justice? Study the book of Amos. God punishes sin. Doesn't demand for people to spread the wealth. <laughs> Doesn't give everybody free cell phones from the hard workers. It's not social justice, that's robbery. Simple. Socialism, Marxism, our hair away from communism. Listen, we have a guy like Bernie Sanders running for president. This is no longer the America of our founding fathers. That the average young person up to the age of 40 cannot tell the difference between a Republican or an American from a socialist or a Marxist. We are in horrible shape. But that's where we stand right now because we have cut off the teaching of history in our schools. And so we fall for the lies and the indoctrination and the propaganda. The word Habakkuk uses to rejoice means to exult or to triumph. Literally, I will jump up and down and spin around. He's excited. 
about God. His love, his justice, his promises, his faithfulness. He has no hope in mankind in the world. Man's evil. Man looks out for himself. Habakkuk would set his mind on the God who saves him. I will will joy in the God of my salvation. That decision is made by him. His commitment. The God of my salvation. Notice the prophet Habakkuk expressed that he would be resilient and strained through the judgments by depending on God by faith. He confesses he had not trusted in his own strength, but on God's strength, the covenant God. Back in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. The tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, because there's no vowels. We believe it's, it's pronounced Yahweh. He'll be everything you, you want him and allow him to be. We are the ones that limit the Lord. And so the prophet here closes with his commission to the chief musician. But before that, he speaks about how God is going to strengthen him like the deer. Here he says, the Lord God is my strength. I will, he will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high heels. Now, that deer hits the high points. He's alert. He's agile. He escapes. He doesn't trip over. He doesn't hit the low points. And so the same here with uh, the prophet. He speaks about trusting in God. And this goes back to Psalm 1833. And so he's looking to the strength of God. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Nehemiah 8.10 tells us. He signs off instructions to the chief musician. With my string instrument. We don't know who he is. But as we look at the uh, Chronicles, and First Chronicles 25, we see that David set up the priestly order and the courses and all. And um, the names that are prominent regarding the um, chief musician and the care of the choir of the songs is Asaph, some of the Psalms, the Psalm of Asaph and that. And so here again, in spite of all this devastation and judgment that's coming, The prophet Habakkuk, a man of faith, as he was told in chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Change that word, faith. The just shall live by the word. The word produces faith. And so this is what now the prophet commits himself to. What God has revealed. He rests in God. And again, on Shigenoth, as chapter 3, verse 1 says, it's, to be an upbeat song. This is not to be a downer. Not the blues. <laughs> this, is, this is good news. Warning those who would dare to rebel against God. And marking God's faithfulness to the faithful who would call upon him. God did bring him back. Seventy years afterward. Just as he said. Jeremiah even doubted it when he was in prison. And God said. Is there anything too hard or difficult for me Jeremiah? Of course not. 
And so we don't have to understand how God's going to do it. If God says He's going to do something, He will absolutely do it. And so, what an what a incredible book, the book of Habakkuk. Just um, three little chapters. But um, last time I taught it was 86, I believe. I will not come back to Habakkuk again. I will be dead or Jesus will come back. One of the two. And so, what a great time we've had with it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. We thank you. We praise you. And Lord, I thank you tonight for every person. And thank you for just your prophet, his faithfulness to trust you. Father, to record this book that we might have it. And Lord, we pray for anybody that would be here and those over the internet, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts if someone doesn't know you. That they would call on your name. You would save them, Lord, as they ask you to forgive them of their sins. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you're over the internet, right where you sit, you can call on Jesus. God who became man, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father. Make an intercession for you. You should call upon him to forgive you and to make you his child by grace through faith. If this is your decision, this is your prayer to him. You can repeat it. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.